Thank you so much. Good morning. What a fantastic worship time. Oh, so good. Man, we've got such incredible worship teams in this church. So thankful. Well, I hope you're uh, well. I'm Phil. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And I hope you've had a good half term. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry for mentioning it. Uh, how many of you have had a, a tricky half term? <laughs> Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Let's pray for you now. Um, I've spent a half term at Center Parks, which has been awesome. So I've been away with my, my kids and some friends. It was brilliant. They spent about 12 hours a day in the swimming pool, came out looking like prunes. Uh, Karen and I spent a combined total of about 12 minutes in the pool, and eight of those were in the jacuzzi. So I think it's a sign of age. Also, this has got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Now I've hit the age of 40, you know kind of men, I'm talking to men here, you know you get those kind of shaver attachments uh, for trimming nasal hair. <laughs> Something strange has happened. Now I've hit the age of 40. Suddenly, I need to use the nasal hair trimmer. Suddenly, I'm growing a beard inside of my nose, and I don't know what's going on. But anyway, we'll move on. We'll move on from that. Um, I hope you've had a good half term. And uh, we, are, we are the second... Maybe we should do a ministry time for <laughs> men who are growing beards inside their nose. Praise the Lord for beard trimmers. Anyway... Um, we, are, we are the second week into a series called Cultures That Change the World. And uh, if you are new to this church family at all, you need to know that there are five cultural values that we have as a church family that are very, very important to us and we believe which can change the world. These are five cultural values which really encapsulate the way that we want to do life together, the way that we want to live in our families, the way that we want to behave in the workplace, the way that we want to build our relationship. Five core cultural values. And those uh, are defined by four words, five words, authenticity, honor, generosity, courage, and acceptance. And I truly believe if we really got a hold of those five cultural values, we literally could shape this planet in an extraordinary way. Just imagine if your life had no fear and you were completely courageous. Just imagine how that would change the planet. Now imagine if you live with such radical generosity that everyone around you got more than they were expecting. I mean, you would literally, you would change your part of your planet. You would change your workplace, your relationships, your family. These five cultural values are dynamite. And this morning, I'm gonna focus in on the, the subject of honor and we're going to get under the surface of this together. And I remember the first time that I really experienced what I would call a culture of honor. And it's when Carol and I visited the King's Arms to speak. We were leaders in another church. And we came down to speak at King's Arms Leaders Weekend back in kind of 2008 kind of time, 2007, 2008. And I remember that meeting for many, many different reasons. Because on the Friday nights... Uh, as Simon was kind of introducing us and he was about to get us onto our feet just to kind of share a few words, he began to kind of launch into this incredibly eloquent description of someone that I didn't recognize. <laughs> and he's like, and you know, Phil and Carol Wilfew, they're world changers and they're shaping the universe and they've been to Mars and back. And, you know, it was this kind of incredible kind of description of who we are and they've got such purpose and destiny and gifting and they're amazing people. And I literally, I didn't recognize myself in his description. I was like, who's he talking? about. And he's like, let's welcome them up. Phil and Carol Wilfew. And we kind of got to our feet and the whole room stood and applauded us like we were returning war heroes. And they'd never met us before. And I thought, this is amazing. And what I began to feel in my spirit, which I, I couldn't articulate then, but which I can now, was this incredible sense of being honored. 
not just for, for what I did, but for who I was. And you, you know, when someone honors you, suddenly you feel 10 feet tall and you think, yeah, what he just said is true. I can change the world. That is who I am. And as we walked forward as, as these kind of returning war heroes, we just began to feel this incredible sense of what it looked like to be honored. I, I remember another thing. As we got up, Carol's back was very bad, and she kind of slightly hobbled to the front of the meeting. And immediately, I saw about 30 pairs of female eyes clock the fact that she was in pain. And as soon as the meeting finished, those 30 ladies came straight up to Carol. They got her a chair. They sat her down, and they all just prayed for her for about 10 or 15 minutes. The next day, one of the ladies who was the weekend came to Carol and she said, God's spoken to me. I'm going to fast this weekend that God heals you and, re and removes pain from your body. I mean, she'd never met her before and she was already praying and fasting for her. I remember at another conference we arrived and there was a special chair set out the front of the meeting, especially for Carol because her back was very bad. And on the chair was a bouquet of flowers and on the flowers was a note that was written as if it was from Father God to his child. And these kind of things just blew us away as we suddenly encountered a culture of honor for the first time. Honor is an incredibly powerful biblical concept. And it occurs right throughout Scripture. I was in a meeting recently with some other leaders and pastors, and we were starting to talk about honor and the culture of honor. And one leader in the room, very experienced, mature guy, said, I said, I don't really like this honor business. See, it's not really in the Bible. It's not really a New Testament word, is it? And we kind of said, well... The New Testament does mention it 75 times. He's like, oh, all right then. And the fact is, honor occurs right throughout Scripture. It talks about honoring leaders, honoring officials, honoring widows, honoring families, honoring marriage. And as if we were you know, trying to find any loophole for people that we didn't quite have to honor as much, uh, two, 1 Peter 2.17 says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. There is no one who falls into a category that you don't have to honor. Honor everyone, says Peter. It's such a powerful word. And honor really is about how we demonstrate value for people that God loves. That's what honor is. It's learning how to meaningfully and practically demonstrate value for people that God loves. And that means you and the person you're sitting next to how we demonstrate value. And I love this story, which I've told so many times, but I love it because it captures something of the culture of honor. And it's the story of Bill Johnson, who leads a, a church in America. And he tells the story of how uh, one morning, a young guy in his early 20s came up to him. And he was clearly very, very nervous. He was kind of trembling as he approached Bill, who's a very kind of experienced pastor in his kind of uh, mid-60s. And this young man kind of approached Bill. And Bill said, as he was coming towards him, he recognized this guy from a student meeting he'd been in a couple of days before. And in this student meeting, this student had come and washed Bill's feet as a kind of act of service and of love. And he recognized this young guy as he was coming towards him. And, and this young man came up to Bill and he said, Bill, I've got a prophetic word that I'd love to give to you. And he was clearly very nervous. And Bill said, go for it. Give it your best shot. And so this young guy kind of screwed up his eyes tight and began to prophesy hell and damnation over Bill Johnson for about 10 minutes. And Bill says about halfway through the prophetic word, he just kind of opened his eyes and just looked at this guy and just loved him. And this guy finished, and he was clearly just so relieved that he'd got this kind of prophetic burden off his chest. And Bill just looked at him in the eyes and said, listen, he said, before you go, there's a few things I need to say to you. 
He said, firstly, thank you so much for your courage. I can see it took a lot of guts to share what you've just shared with me. Well done. Well done for being so courageous. He said, secondly, you need to understand that I can't receive what you just said as being from God because I don't believe it was. And he told him the reasons why. And he says, but thirdly, I'd love you just to wait for a moment and take a seat. I'm going to come back in a second. The young guy sat down on the chair. Bill Johnson went off, filled up a, a bowl of soapy hot water and brought it back to the young guy, took his shoes off, took his socks off, knelt to his knees and washed this young guy's feet. And then he looked him in the eye and he said, listen, you may have got it wrong this time, but come back next week and try again. That right there is a culture of honor. Where you learn to express value for people that God loves, irrespective of their performance. That's honor. And that's the kind of culture we're wanting to build. And the, the, the truth is, these kind of values in terms of the way that we want to live, actually all these kind of behaviors come from core beliefs. Do you understand that the way you behave comes from what you believe? Did you understand that? All the things that you do come from something that you believe is true. Which means that even cultural values like honor and generosity can become slavish principles that we feel we have to do unless we understand why we're doing them. If you don't understand why it's important to honor, then you can very easily get into slavish duty. I must honor. I must honor. I must be generous. I, I must be kind. I must be authentic because we're keeping the rules. We're keeping the rules. That's what we do. That's what we do. If you don't understand why we do what we do, listen, you've just got yourself into legalism. We need to understand why the, the beliefs that drive our behavior and the belief that underpins a culture of honor is this. You and I were made in God's image. That is the belief that drives the behavior of honor. You and I and everyone around you and your family and in the workplace and in this whole planet, the reason that we honor everyone is because we're made in God's image and likeness. God has put into the very DNA of humanity the highest honor that he could possibly give, which is likeness to himself. I don't know if you got that. God has, God has placed into the DNA of humanity the highest honor that he could possibly give you. He made you in his likeness, which is what sets you apart from the dolphins and the elephants. God bless them. But he made you in his Image and likeness. This is what Genesis 1.26 says. This is the creation account. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is amazing. Theologically, this is called imago Dei. You're made in God's image. You're made in his likeness. And there are a couple of truths, just as we kind of set these uh, thoughts up, that we need to understand about being made in God's image. First of all, you need to understand that irrespective of someone's belief system, whether they believe in God or not, whether they hate God or worship God, whether they think God's a myth or whether they've given their whole life to him, irrespective of whether you believe in Christ or not, there is something about you that reflects something about him. 
which means you may be here this morning, you may not yet be a Christian. Listen, there is something about your life that still reflects your creator who made you. Because of your humanity, because of what God has sown into the very DNA of your humanity. So irrespective of what you believe, there is still something about you that reflects him. Your ability to think, your ability to make decisions, your ability to build family, your ability to love other people, your ability to build meaningful relationships. All these things reflect something about the creator in whose image you're made. The second thing we need to understand is this, is that the original image-bearing glory that God gave man in the garden was lost through sin, but is restored in Christ. The original image-bearing glory that God gave man, which was the glory of intimacy with God, the glory of co-creating with God, the glory of inheriting God's promises, the the glory of, of, of ruling and reigning with him, that glory that God gave man in the original plan of the creator's heart which was lost at sin is restored in Jesus Christ. Romans 3:23 says this, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See because of sin, because of rebellion against God, that original image-bearing glory that God gave us has been has been tarnished. It's, it's been broken, it's been severed, there's something that's not quite as it was originally intended to be. But Paul goes on in that Romans verse, he says, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus restores the original intention of the Father. You're made in his image. All of this to say, if you're to understand how to honor others, You need to understand whose image you're created in. This actually is a very, very important principle. In fact, the very first four words of the Bible give you a massive clue to a fruitful life. What are the first four words of the Bible? In the beginning... Okay, some of you need to read Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God... In the beginning, God, there is a whacking great clue to fruitfulness in your life. In the beginning, God. Which is very different to how many of us live our life. Because many of us live our life, in the beginning, me. That's how many of us live our life. In the beginning was me. At the center of the universe is me. Listen, I've tried many times living with me at the center of the universe. And I tell you, when that happens, planets start colliding, gravity disappears, supernovas are created, black holes and wormholes get created when you put me at the center of my universe. In the beginning, God. See, to understand yourself and what you're to do, you need to understand him and what he has done. You cannot understand yourself or your destiny or your purpose unless you first understand God. Mike Bickle wrote this many years ago. He said, the great crying need of our generation is for 10,000 preachers who will herald the greatness and the glory of our God. And that is true. I tell you what our generation needs are men and women who will not tell them how great they are, but how great he is. And that you cannot understand your greatness until you understand his You cannot understand the glory you carry until you understand the glory he carries. Don't just say that God is amazing. Say some amazing things about God. Learn to understand what he is like. Because until you do, you cannot really find yourself. 
Because you're made in his image in the beginning God. And you see, your theology and your Christology will always inform your ecclesiology. Sorry, I know that's a lot of ologies. Your theology, in other words, what you believe about God, and your Christology, what you believe about God revealed in Jesus, will always inform what you believe about God's people, ecclesiology, the gathered church. Your understanding about him and Christ will inform what you believe about other people and how you behave towards them. And that is where core convictions come from, from understanding what he is like. Which is why Satan's very first temptation is to doubt the character and the nature of what God is like. Do you remember, the first first temptation, the first thing that Satan says to man is this. Did God really say, don't eat the fruit of the garden? It's the very first question that comes from Satan's mouth to man. What's he doing? Immediately he's trying to undermine man's confidence in what God is like. And when you get a distortion of God, you always get the deception of man. That's what happens. And it happens in our lives very regularly still. Probably the biggest battles in your life stem from a battle to re-believe what God says about himself is true. See, understanding him is always a worship issue. Let me just give you an example. The the, the area of worshiping God with our money. See, uh, it's interesting when we do a preaching series on money. It's really interesting because what happens is that when you preach about honoring God with your money, what happens in the church is that people hear the word of God and they're like, yes, that's the word of God. And they get inspired or maybe sometimes guilty. And what immediately happens after you preach about giving in the church finances is that this happens. And people start to give, either out of conviction, inspiration, or guilt. All three are possible. (laughs) I've done all three. What happens is giving kind of goes like that. But what happens after about two or three months, giving goes back like this. That's what happens. Without fail, every single time. What's going on there? Well, I tell you what's happening is that often we respond out of guilt or inspiration, but because our conviction about who God is hasn't changed, our behavior doesn't change either. Because something inside our core belief system that God, you are Jehovah Jireh, my provider, I cannot outgive you, therefore I can live a lifestyle of generosity, not just three months. Unless that changes, your giving will just go revert back to type, because who you believe God is hasn't changed. Your view about who God is has to change. Your behavior has to change. Does that make sense to you? That's why theology and Christology always informs your ecclesiology. In the beginning, God. I hope I'm kind of getting the point across. (laughs) In the beginning, God. So what I want to look at is a little bit about what God is like. Because for you to understand yourself and Therefore, how to honor, you need to understand whose image you're made in and what he is like. Okay, and I just want to apologize up front because I'm not going to massively apply lots of today's message and I'm going to read lots of long quotes from people who've described God better than I can. All right, but trust me, it's going to be good for you. I'm a doctor. All right, so we're going to look at just a few aspects of the nature and the character of God. Okay, just nudge someone next to you and say, This is going to be really good for you. You need to hear this. All right, so 
let's firstly look at something about God's incredible knowledge. God's incredible knowledge. You, because you're created by God in his image, have an ability to learn things, to grow in wisdom, to acquire knowledge, and to love truth. And the reason that you can do all of those things is because you're made like him. You're made like your father in heaven. He is a God of infinite knowledge. He has incredible mental attributes. Let's just focus on one of those, his omniscience, which is the theological word for God knows everything. Okay? God knows everything. Let's just kind of unpack that together. Here's a definition of God knowing everything. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. And I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. Job 37, 16 says, Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? 1 John 3.20, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Wow, God knows everything. So let's unpack that definition. Firstly, God fully knows himself. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the spirit of a man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. God fully knows himself, which is incredible because God himself is infinite. I'll try over here. The fact that God fully knows himself is incredible because God in his being is infinite. I'll try over here. The fact that God knows himself is miraculous because God's nature is infinite. It has no beginning. It has no end. It has no floor. It has no ceiling. God goes on and on and on and on and on and on, forever and forever and forever, because God is outside of time. His nature is eternal and infinite, and yet God fully knows himself. That is amazing. <sighs> Secondly, God knows all things that actually happen. So not only does he fully know himself, he knows all things that actually happen on the planet. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Matthew 6.8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 10.30, even the hairs on your head are numbered. So God knows everything from the micro to the macro, from the small to the massive, the little details to the huge, great big cosmic plans. God knows everything that actually happens in your life, past, present, and future. He knows your thoughts. He knows your deeds. He knows the things that are done in secret. He knows the things that are done in public. Charles Spurgeon said that to God, our thoughts are like speech. Which scared me when I read it, but to God, our thoughts are like speech. He knows Everything, everything in your life he knows about. I was in New Zealand a number of years ago, and I was teaching about the, the prophetic and how God speaks in dreams. And one of my friends that night, as she went to sleep, she prayed that God would give her her PIN number in a dream because she was nearly about to be locked out of her card because she'd forgotten a PIN number. And she had one more attempt left. And so before she went to bed that night, she prayed. She's like, Jesus if you really speak in dreams, please give me four numbers in my dream. Well, that night she had four digits come to her in a dream in a particular sequence. She went the next day, put a card in the wall, put the four digits in, and she was in. She's beautiful. 
I mean, I love it that God cares about that stuff, but also God knows about that stuff. He knows your PIN number. He does. He knows your email passwords. He knows how to hack into your Facebook account. He knows how to get into Instagram. He, he knows all that stuff. He just does every detail. Nothing you can do will take him by surprise. Huh. Thirdly, God knows all things that are actually possible. In other words, things that could happen but haven't. Okay? So 1 Samuel 23 is an example. So David goes to God and, and asks God what would happen if he goes to a particular town called Kelia. And God says, well, if you went to that town, this is what would happen. And so David doesn't go to that town, so it doesn't happen. So here's the mind bender. God knows what will happen if you made a different decision. See, if you made a different life choice about this, that, or the other, God knows what would have happened. He knows all eventualities, all possibilities. He understands it all. Fourthly, God knows everything in one simple and eternal act, which means this. God's knowledge doesn't grow or change. God doesn't have to kind of punch in the numbers to come up with the answer. He just knows instantly. You know, he's, he's not like a kind of giant cosmic computer that he has to punch in an equation to find out how stuff works or what the answer to that particular conundrum is. God just knows in one simple and eternal act. He knows everything instantaneously. Which means that, you know, he, 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 knows, he knows what's going to happen in a hundred years' time without even having to think. He just knows in one simple and eternal act. A.W. Tozer says this, Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had, had not possessed from eternity, he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher might be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the most high God, maker of heaven and earth. God knows everything. Here are a couple of implications of that for you and I. Number one, praise God that although God knows everything, he chooses to forget your sin. I mean, praise God. Though he knows everything... Isaiah 43, verse 25 says, I will remember your sins no more. And it's not that God is implying that he's no longer aware of our sins. It's, it's more that he's saying, I will never again let the knowledge of your sin affect the way that I relate to you. I'm relating to you on a different basis now. I know the reality is some of you need to believe in your own forgiveness. If God, who knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, everything minute, everything massive in your life, and yet he is the one who says, I forget, I will remember your sins no more. Stop reminding him of things that he's already forgiven you for. You know, some of us are like my dog who goes back to her own vomit and eats it. Some of us are like that. We go back and replay in our head the things that we did wrong, the things that I messed up. Oh, God, God, God. We beat ourselves up endlessly. When the creator of the universe, he knows everything, says, I will remember your sins no more. Stop returning to your vomit. It's not a way to live. <laughs> Tozer says this. 
No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us or expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. He knew it all and still he chose you. Here's the second implication of God's knowledge is this. God's knowledge causes worship. The God who knows everything is the God that we worship. God, you know everything. You know, you, you, you know how many eggs are in my fridge. You know which chicken the eggs came from. You know when the eggs in my fridge are going to go off. You, you know how I like my eggs cooked. You just know everything. From the trivial to the, the massive, he knows everything. Isn't it amazing? Again, uh, Arthur Pink says this, The apprehension of God's infinite knowledge should fill the Christian with adoration. The whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. Oh, how the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship before him. God's knowledge is awesome. Guess what? You are made in his image. Every time you learn, every time you grow, every time you acquire wisdom, every time you mature, you're reflecting something about the beauty of God's knowledge. Secondly, God's power. So, no human beings were created as powerful people who can make powerful choices. You're not a victim, you're a powerful person. You're so powerful that you have the ability to choose whether to follow him or not. That's how powerful you actually are. God has placed in the hand of mankind this incredible thing called free will. And guess what? That reflects something about God. He is free to make choices as well. He is free to exercise his power. And again, theologically, the word for God's power is omnipotence, which just simply means that God is all-powerful. Here's a great definition of omnipotence. God is able to do all of his holy will. So in other words, if God thinks of something that he would like to do or would be a good outcome, he also has the power to execute it. <laughs> he has the power to execute it. Genesis 18 verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jeremiah 32, 17, nothing is too hard for you. Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. And again, Stephen Charnock says this, As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be his eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be, be, but be feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. But God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by any creature. That's what God's power is like. It's amazing. That's what God's, he's, he's able to fulfill all of his holy will. There's nothing in God that is frustrated because God can execute perfectly all that's in his mind. That's the one that you serve. That's the one who created you. You're made in his image and likeness. 
And of course, one of the huge implications of God's power is that you can trust him. (laughs) You can trust such a God. Nothing is impossible for him. Again, Arthur Pink says this, Well may the saint trust such a God. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver from, and no misery too deep for him to relieve. What impossibilities exist in your life right now? I tell you, suddenly they will become very small if you grab hold of how big he is. He's the God for whom nothing is impossible. And all around this room, there are stories time and time again of those moments where God stepped in and did the impossible. I was just thinking this morning, there were so many stories in my life of people's lives that he's saved, of bodies that he's healed, of finance that he's provided, of grace he's given in times of trauma and tragedy. I've got so many examples of impossibilities where God has suddenly stepped onto the page and everything changes. That's the God you serve. Toza says, God is love and God is sovereign. His love disposes him to desire our everlasting welfare and his sovereignty enables him to secure it. Oh, I'm getting happy. I don't know about you. All right, here we go. Here's the third one as we come in for a landing. God's relational brilliance. Again, you were created like God. God is brilliant in the way that he relates to people. God is, although he's the most powerful and all-knowing being in the whole of the universe, he is also the most loving and the most kind and the most gracious and the most merciful. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And again, your ability to show mercy to others, to have compassion, to develop deep relationships of love, reflects something about him and what he is like. You love family. Why? Because he does. You know, you love your, your spouse. Why? Because he does. You love your dog. He does. Love comes from him because God is love. That's where it originates in his relational brilliance. Here are a few aspects of his relational brilliance. God's mercy. I'm just going to hammer you with loads of good news right now, okay? So God's mercy, a definition is God's goodness towards those in mercy and distress. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Again, Toza says this. This is brilliant. If we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that it will someday cease to be. Mercy never began to be, but from eternity was, and so it will never cease. It will never be more, since in itself it is infinite. It will never be less, because the infinite cannot suffer loss. Nothing that has occurred or will occur in heaven or earth or hell can change the tender mercies of our God. Forever his mercy stands, a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. God's mercy, that's what he's like. What about God's grace? His grace is God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. 1 Peter 5.10 says he is the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Again, grace is different from mercy. If, if you were caught speeding, mercy would be you being let off your speeding ticket. But grace is you being caught speeding and being given a check for a million pounds. That's grace. You've just experienced grace in that moment. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And here's the God of all grace. He is the God of all grace. I promise you, it's in the Bible. 
<laughs> his, his grace is limitless. Again, Tozer says this, to abound in sin. That is the worst and the most that we could or can do. The word abound defines the limit of our finite abilities. And although we feel our iniquities rise over us like a mountain, the mountain nevertheless has definable boundaries. It's so large, so high, it weighs only this certain amount and no more. But who can define the limitless grace of God? It is much more and it plunges our thoughts into infinitude and confounds them there. All thanks be to God for grace abounding. The reason you can give grace to people who don't deserve it is because of your father. That's what he is like. What about God's love? Definition of God's love is this. God eternally gives himself to others. Oh, that's, I don't think you could better that definition of love. God eternally gives of himself to others. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. There is no love that doesn't exist outside of him. God is love. Tozer says, from God's other attributes, we may learn much about God's love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we must kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. And then he says this, It is a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that he has allowed his heart to be emotionally identified with men. Self-sufficient as he is, he wants our love and will not be satisfied till he gets it. Free as he is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. Wow. This is your God. This is the one in whose image you're created. And then here's just the last quality to look at is God's holiness. Definition is God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Isaiah 6.3 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, Tozer says this. Since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. When he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from irreparable moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. God hates injustice. He hates pain. He hates sickness. Why? Because he's holy. Guess what? You were created in your father's image. You were created to live with the same passions. You were created to live and demonstrate the same values in your life. What's the conclusion of all this? 
the conclusion is this. Psalm 8 says that he has crowned man with glory and honor. And the reason that we live radical lives of honor towards every single person that we come across is because they were made in his image. And to understand honor, you've got to understand God. Here's a couple of honor implications for you. Number one, what does your behavior and thought life tell you about your beliefs? What does your behavior and your thought life tell you about what you believe about God? I would encourage you to do some business with him and just look at some of the the habits or the things that you find difficult and just ask yourself this question. Instead of just trying to change your behavior, ask yourself, am I believing something wrong about him? Because I tell you, if you get that in line, behavior will follow. If you understand who he is and therefore who you are, your actions will change. And then secondly, the second honor question is this. What does it look like to value the person in front of me right now? That is an honor question. What does it look like to value the person in front of me right now? If they are made in God's image and likeness, how can I express value and worth to them? What does that look like? And it might look like lots of different things in lots of different situations. It might mean learning from other people. Come with a humble attitude. Listen to people when they talk to you. Look people in the eye when they're having a conversation. Don't look at your phone when you're having a conversation with somebody else. Be present in a conversation instead of looking like you want to talk to someone else more important. Be present. Be on time. It's amazing that we'll be on time for money, but we won't be on time for honor. It's just my opinion. It means show gratitude. It means encourage. It means applaud when you think something's good. It means think the best of other people. It means be honest. It means give generously. It means show appreciation and respect. Give your money away to bless others. Talk kindly about people behind their backs. Write words that build up, not tear down. Speak the truth in love to one another. All these things are examples of what it looks like to value the person in front of you. What does that look like in your life? How can you live a life of radical honor? because you're made in his image.